You're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast, the official channel for faith and life topics at PursueGod.org. Join us every week as we explore new topics from a biblical perspective. It's Tuesday again, and that means it's time once again to talk with my good friend, Dr. Suthian Devadas, about God and math. Sadi, when we started this thing a couple weeks ago, you said, who knows, it might just be me and you and our moms listening to this. I'm seriously not even sure our moms are even still listening to this, so it might just be the two of us now. But we, here's where we've been so far. We, we talked a couple weeks ago about, go about embracing mystery. This is true in God and in math. And then last week we talked about exploring beauty. You know, it's not just about the utility of the thing, but it's the beauty of the thing that God is worth. Mm. Well, you talked about math, but I've been talking about God. But, but that mm. both God and math are worth exploring for their own sakes, not just as a means to the end, but for their own sakes. And that's certainly a biblical concept when it comes to when it comes to God. And today we're going to talk about experiencing faith, because so far I've sort of had the pastor hat on, you've had the mathematician hat on, but I want to make sure yeah. that we end today um, for the people who've been hanging out with us for these last few weeks during this series, uh, and I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to talk about faith. And I guess the question we can start with is, can you use math to arrive at faith. Going back to the other, the two previous things, Brian, we've talked about both mystery and beauty. I have colleagues in my departments uh, that look at mathematics the same way I do. We're both looking at a result, a beautiful theorem like Gauss-Bonnet, which is, I think, one of the most beautiful theorems ever. And my colleague and I look, my colleague is a secular humanist. He's an atheist. And he's looking going, man, that's the prettiest thing I've ever seen. I'm looking at it going, man, that's the prettiest thing I've ever seen. We're both looking at it as a, as a work of beauty in, in front of us. But for him, he goes, sweet. And then he starts exploring mathematics as an atheist. I say, praise God, what a great, cool thing. And then I start exploring mathematics as a believer, as a Christian. And we still can have these experiences of looking at mathematics, the same object, both in terms of, of exploring its mystery and learning, out, learning more about it and as something that's beautiful, but have very different faith viewpoints. So I guess the quick and direct answer is my mathematics, my mathematics does not give me new insight into faith, but my faith helps me frame mathematics differently than others. But I think one thing that people might get disappointed in is, you know, I am thinking about these mathematical ideas. And as you're saying, Bri, they're related. It feels like they're analogous statements to these big questions about God. Why can't you somehow have a proof or a theorem or a result of mathematical truth to kind of put the screws on and either prove or disprove God's existence? And I, I guess the main answer I would say is, Math is the weakest of all the tools. Okay, I'm, I've got to push back on that because I think probably some of our listeners are saying, hold on a second, did I just hear you right? You said that math is the simplest of the disciplines. So in other words, you're saying that the typical person would say that math is the most compli complicated, you know, mm. art and literature and history and economics and even biology, that those are to the you know, to the simpler side of things, but, but you're telling us that it's actually the other way around. Yeah, I think that's totally right, Brian. The main reason is uh, the notion of perception. If I'm sitting on a plane ride with somebody and on one side of them is me, a mathematician, the other side of them is a historian. Immediately the instinct, and I've 
seen this so many times in my life. The instinct is, oh, you're a historian. That's great. Oh, but you're a mathematician. You must be smart. Right? There's this kind of built-in notion that those in the sciences and those in mathematics are really smart. In fact, don't we have a saying that says something like scientific truth? You know, we have all of these things, but the scientists have said, you know, as if they're the voice of God, as if they have true and absolute reality in their hands. Why is that? I think that is true, that science is really powerful. Mathematics is really, really powerful. We have these ideas. I think last time we talked about the fact that we have ideas of measuring every possible triangle and say that the angles add up to 180 degrees, although we haven't really measured all of them, right? We could just say this truth without actually measuring all the triangles. So it feels quite powerful. But my friend, I think there's a hidden dimension that we're not seeing. And that hidden dimension is a dimension of complexity. You see, mathematics is powerful and it's truly measurable, but it's dealing with very simple things. We're dealing with triangles. Uh, we're dealing with prime numbers, right? We're dealing with uh, one, two, three, four, dot, dot, dot. Of course, I'm trivializing it a little bit, right? But the questions that we're dealing with are just so beautiful and perfect. A physicist is not dealing with a mathematically perfect triangle. It's dealing with a triangle in the real world. A biologist is dealing with a triangle that's moving and changing and, and morphing, right? It's a biological object that's no longer triangles, but a fish. And an economist is dealing with how humans would buy and sell things. A historian is dealing with things not now, but in time, backwards in time. And so there's a massive notion of complexity to the point that an artist doesn't even use words to explain their ideas, but has to come, come at it in terms of images. And so, listen, let me just give you a simple analogy about this fish, right? So here's the way I think of it. Imagine a mathematician is given a fish on a plate, except the fish is dead and it's been completely cleaned and it, you just see the bones of the fish. And the mathematician's given the fish and they say, hey, could you please count the number of bones? And she looks at the fish and she goes, 341. Oh my gosh, dude, you are so, so accurate, so measurable. Hey, could you do that again? Yeah, um, she says, 341. Oh, repeatable data, you're phenomenal. And it feels like it's powerful, it's accurate, it's repeatable, it's measurable. And then the biologist is asked that question, except the question is, hey, can you count the number of bones in the fish? But now the fish is moving in the, in the pond. Oh my gosh, that's a far more difficult question. The historian is saying, hey, could you tell me what the fish was doing three days ago? <laughs> that's not kind of the bones of the fish because the question has changed. And so the historian is dealing with a question that is of more intense complexity. So you can't be that measurable, right? You're going to be sloppy in your measurement because you're doing a far harder thing. And then artists just ask, hey, what was the fish thinking about on Tuesday, <laughs> right? It's just like, can you imagine and draw or at least visualize that thing? It's the complexity changes. So you're saying, let me see if I, if I get what you're saying. You're saying that arts and humanities, the soft sciences, that they're not rocket science. They're actually harder than rocket science? That's exactly right. I would say that fact the, the fact that we as humans have put a person on the moon is actually doing the easy stuff. You know, if you actually take the hard stuff, you might say, well, oh my gosh, it's quite brilliant for us to have done all that, right? To work as a community to do this. And that's true. I don't want to dismiss that. But there are these other big puzzles we're dealing with. One is, how does the moon look like? And we actually get there. Those are the huge puzzle that we knocked out of the park. But what about this puzzle of how do we treat the other gender? How do we talk about gender? How do we talk about race? You know, if we look at race issues today, just in America, you talk about inequality, you talk about justice, you even talk about marriages. How do you keep a marriage together? 
you know, one of my children's adopted. You know, how do you take care of a child who's adopted issues of foster care? Those are far more complicated, and we cannot solve issues of race and gender right now, not because we haven't tried or we're not smart, but because the question is far harder than a cleaner question of, can we land on the moon? It's not just physics and bio and economic principles. We're getting into what it means to be human. And we can't figure it out because that's an intense, intense topic. Okay, so then we started by saying, can you use math to arrive at faith? So where would you, where would you put faith, Christ, you know, the Christian faith then on this spectrum as we're talking about arts and humanities and math and all this stuff? Yeah, I would say not just the Christian faith, but the notions of faith would be kind of on the far end of complexity. Because not only are you dealing with issues of theology and philosophy, you know, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to do morality and good? What does it mean to talk about ethics? But then you have a notions of community. What does it mean to love each other? What does it mean to give up who we are? What, what does truth look like? Like, what's the big question in the capital B, capital Q that we've been, you know, thinking about here and there in terms of beauty um, in the past talk? But... And those things are not are not formulas, right? Like you can't summarize what you think a beautiful sunset is as an equation. And that's just a beautiful sunset. You can't talk about what it means to share a great meal with a friend, you know, have a beer together, have a glass of wine together, talk about it and reminisce on, you know, how you and I grew up together 30 years ago. We can't talk about that in some formula because it's far more complicated than that. Now, there are ideas that say, you know what, that's just a bunch of cells and neurons firing and remembering, that's one possible answer to it, right? To say like, all of it's just biology. You know, to me, that's, that's a faith statement, right? But then we're still in the notion of what it means to talk about these big questions. And that is probably some of the most complicated things there are. To me, what I'm really interested in, Bri, you know, in terms of how to live my life is, I'm not really interested in what makes me happy, I'm not really interested in what makes me emotionally satisfied. You know, a lot of people say, well, you, the reason you might want to believe in a God is that God loves you and makes you feel, you know, good inside. Or maybe you're guaranteed a life after this. So that must make you feel good because even if your whole world's going away, at least you got some safety net in the back. To me, that's just a joke. That's silliness, man. Like, why would I want to believe in something that's not real? Why would I want to kind of artificially believe in a God who loves me if it's not real? What I really want to know is how does the world work? Like, what is real? What is the truth out there? And if the truth is that there's nothing out there but what you see is what you get, right? The secular humanist, you see particles, you see, that's it. You see uh, molecules, that's it. You see a big bang in terms of uh, giving out black holes, that's it. That's fine if that's the reality. But is there something else beyond it? Is there is there a bigger notion? I just want to know what's real. And... I guess the questions that I'm really trying to answer are the questions that, that a security guard on a, on a college campus might ask a student at two in the morning on a Saturday. Who are you? What are you doing here? Where are you going? You know, those questions that you and I got asked, right, when we're, when we're on campus inappropriately at some doing some random stuff is exactly what I want to know. Who am I? What, what am I doing here? Where am I going? Like, those are the big questions to me. And... You can take this massive notion, Bri, of, of humans throughout time struggling with those questions, and you have these different faith statements, right? You have, you have what a Buddhist might think and answers to those questions are, what a Hindu might think, what a Mormon might think, what a Christian might think, right? You have, you have these different answers to those questions about these statements. But recently, a secular humanist, somebody who's an atheist, would say, 
you know what? That it feels like you guys, all y'all who are thinking about God and religion, have a crutch. You all feel like you need that in order to in order to make life work somehow. And when I talk about this notion of cowboy, this cowboy attitude, having grown up in India, it's a community-based system. So, you know, everybody has a tight community more on how things go. But America, because of the land is so massive, right? It has been people exploring as cowboys in the Western world. And there's a notion of cowboy atheism of just, you know, that a secular humanist is, take, is able to remove the rose-colored glasses, this artificial stuff called God, and then just look at the world raw as it is. You know, the world we used to call our world the cosmos, which was, you know, cosmos sounds like, you know, it's bigger than just us, right? There's like other things going on, maybe angels and demons or some forces we don't get. But now we don't call the world cosmos, we call it universe. And the cowboy Western thought is almost of like, hey, I'm able to look at the cold, dark universe and face it without a crutch of God. And to me, that's the big question. Do you need this crutch? Is it important? What is really going on? So what would you say then with, what would you say then to that cowboy atheist who points a finger at you and says, faith is a crutch to you. I have something more sure. My, my belief in atheism, that there is no God, it's just us here. It's just black and white, just that simple. What's your response yeah. to that as a mathematician, or maybe even more importantly, what's your response to that as a Christian? Yeah, I think the classic viewpoint of somehow using math and science to think about notions of faith usually doesn't work. So if I'm just using my mathematical powers, math is so beautiful and so gorgeous. I am just in love with it. I'm in love with creating it. I'm in love with looking at it and sharing it, but it is too perfect. The world is broken and it's so complicated that mathematics and science aren't enough. In fact, what usually happens, a lot of times what a secular humanist or an atheist is talking about is usually people just think math and science are the most important. So they start using math and science as a way to defend the Christian faith. They'd say, hey, you know what? You got math and science on your side. Hey, we got, you know, we could talk about evolution and creation and try to and bring them together. Let's, let's, let's read Genesis 1 and how God created you know, the world. And let's like look at it through the lens of science and look at it through the lens of physics and biology. And that's cool. I'm not, I don't have anything wrong with that, but man, the Bible's a big thing. And Genesis 1 is just one speck of the beginning of what the story's about. In fact, if you look at it a little bit deeply, let me, let me actually play the role of an atheist right now. If you look at Genesis 1, it starts by God talking from a scientific lens, Brian, let's talk about it, right? Like he makes, uh, you know, the Big Bang comes out, it feels like, uh, the, the heavens and the earth, you know, in terms of the, the different planets get formed, the, the solar system kind of gets formed, and then, and then there's kind of water and plant life, right, which leads to animal life, which leads to finally the crescendo of Genesis 1, kind of the last thing is, is man's created at the end of it. So it feels like, oh, that feels like a normal evolutionary thing. But then an atheist would be like, hey, dude, have you turned the page? <laughs> have you looked at Genesis 2? And if you look at Genesis 2, it is totally not the order that Genesis 1 is in. And right now, if I was an atheist, I'd just throw the whole book of the Bible out. In Genesis 2, it has God creating man, you know, man and woman, and then he creates all these other things following it. 
like you know he makes the the plants and animals for for man he makes all of these things for man wait a minute dude in genesis 1 you said man was the last thing you made in genesis 2 literally the next chapter you didn't hide it in habakkuk 4 you know some weird stuff you put it right there and you're giving me a different mathematically contradictory story and it's right there what is going on so either the people who wrote the bible are just idiots you know they should have done they should have torn up genesis 2 or they are so thoughtful there's something else going on here. And it feels to me like as a person who has thought deeply about communities of respect and honor, like clearly the Jewish faith, they've thought about these things. So what is that? So, yeah, how do you answer How do you answer the atheist then who is saying that? Or even the Christian who's saying, wait a second, I never even thought about it like that. There's, there's, a, there's something about the way we view the world in the Western world and even then, yeah. therefore, the way that we view Scripture, where again, we're just—it's so—we're tr- it's like almost we're trying to view it as a scientist or a mathematician, yes. but that's not really yes. how it was even meant to be written. Yeah, if you, in fact, the main punchline is you have to understand who Genesis one was written to. We can read it, and so we have the honor and the privilege of being able to read this amazing document. But it was written to a group of people who had the Babylonian. Um, the Babylonian creation epic by Marduk. And so what happens is there's a, there's a queen goddess who rules everything. And Marduk comes, is one of her sons, rips her into two pieces because she's, you know, an evil one and, and doing damage. And that's how the heavens and the earth are made. The heavens and the earth are actually made from one god that's been ripped into two pieces. And somebody has to maintain all the stuff that's happening in the earth, right? Like you got to keep things going. And so there are all these other gods, these other brothers and sister gods that come to Marduk and say, dude, man, we're getting really tired working on all this stuff. And so Marduk creates from clay humanity to keep the earth functioning. And if you look at Genesis 1, that sounds kind of like it. In other words, and what, what I mean, not directly, but it sounds like, you know, at the end of the story, you know, there's all the plants and animals and like, you know, God kind of made humans to kind of clean up the stuff. So it feels like that. And the entire point of Genesis 2 is to say, yeah, this is what really happened in Genesis 1. But Genesis 2, let me show you what God is thinking about as he did this. The entire time he's doing it, man is not a slave who happens at the end of Genesis 1, but man is in the heart of God as he does this entire creation of the earth for man. The entire point of Genesis 2 is to speak against the story that's happening in Marduk, to say that man is not an afterthought and a slave, but something really important to God. And it feels, Bri, that it's, it feels like, dude, where are you getting all this, man? It's, you can't read this thing as simply as a book and read it as a scientific document, as you say. You have to get this thing from historical sources, from all these other things, and that is what I mean by complexity. If you give honor to a faith that's really been thinking about this, let's talk about the Hindu faith or the Buddhist faith or the Christian faith, right? You just pick a faith. You can't dismiss them simply as like, ah, this this makes no sense to me. There's something deeper going on. Let's give them honor. Let's pursue it and find out. And you realize there's a lot of seriousness going on in these things. So science is not the right lens. So, Saadi, let's go through a few of these other lenses from the, some of these other disciplines. How would you how would you defend Christianity from the through the lens of literature, for example? Through the lens of literature, I think, you know, I think if, I think if your faith statement, if the way, if the story in which the way the world works makes sense to you, if if you have a have a have a story to think about, and you say, hey, I believe in the Hindu story, I believe in 
in in the in the Christian story, then then it has to be defended, and it has to make sense through almost any lens you look at, right? It has to pass some kind of a test. And one of the reasons I love that I personally am a follower of Jesus, that I'm a I'm a Christian, is that it passes the test in flying colors through almost any lens. And so let me give you an example. As a book of literature, not as a spiritual book or as an emotional book or a book that makes me feel good when I'm reading the Psalms or give me wisdom. It's just a book of literature, you know, as like Shakespeare's works of literature. As if you read like Beowulf and it's like, man, that's an amazing work of literature. Does the Bible, does at least the Jewish scripture, does the Old Testament with all of their stories and with all their complexity, does it pass the test? One of the greatest books I've ever read is a work by Robert Alter, who's uh, not a Christian. He's uh, he's a, actually a literary critic. His power, he's a professor at Berkeley. He's emeritus. He's retired recently. But he basically has been critiquing literature and measuring literature, just like you would measure you know, how something weighs. You'd measure gravity. You know, as a physicist, you'd measure biological principles. He would measure literature. Is it good or bad literature? And he says, wait a minute. I can take my literary powers and start to look at the Hebrew Bible and see if it passes that test. And he wrote a book called The Art of the Biblical Narrative. And I cried almost every night that I read this book. It took me a long time to read this very small book because I'm a slow reader. But it blew me away, Bri, because he basically says it is one of the greatest works of literature ever. So let me give you an example, right? Let me give you an example. And all of these things, I want you to think of the word tension. I think you brought it up. Uh, in you know, a few of the conversations we've had is holding tension in your hand, like Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, they're in tension because they're going against each other a little bit, right? This is, doesn't make sense. And the Western world wants to break the tension and say, give me one or the other one. But usually very complicated, very intense, high dimensional ideas hold tension in there. I think mathematics breaks the tension because it's not dealing with complicated things. So let's take a look at this literature. And here's one, one little story. Some of y'all might know the story of King David. Uh, David was kind of the second king of the nation of Israel. And he's, the, he's known as the greatest king at that time, person after God's own heart. And Alter says that the first time a character in the Hebrew scriptures speak tells you their identity. I don't know if, you, you know if you've ever read anything about Shakespeare, Bri, or read... Um, Uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Or like, you know, any kind of famous work of literature in the Western world. And you realize that, I don't know the first time Atticus Finch, you know, one of the greatest characters speaks. I don't know what his first words are. But in the Hebrew Bible, the first time somebody says something, that is their character. That is their identity. So the way the play is set up, the first time they speak is, is important. You know what King's, King David's first words are? It's not when, when you meet him with Samuel, when he gets baptized, when he gets anointed. You know, his first words are, what will I get for killing him? Comma, to the glory of God. It's a really funny thing. It's the first time is when he sees Goliath. And he basically says, hey, I want to honor God. So you see this tension, right? Because he ends with, to the glory of God. I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, you know, may God be glorified if somebody takes it down. But there's a tension because he goes, what do I get for it? It's, it's wait, wait a minute. So King David is this kind of like conflicted character, it feels like. King David's friend, this is before he becomes king, but one of his best friends is Jonathan, who's the prince at that time, right? King David, sorry, not King David. David's just a shepherd guy, but Jonathan's a prince. Throughout scripture, Jonathan says to David over and over again, I love you, I love you, I love you. 
And David never once says that back to Jonathan. He's befriending the prince, but he never reciprocates the love in his words. He marries the princess, right? He marries uh, Jonathan's sister. But again, it's like a tough marriage that happens over there. So throughout this entire story of David, it's like, wait, is he this amazing man of God or is he a mafia figure? You know King David's last words? It's amazing to me. King David's last words right before he goes to, uh, goes to the grave is, it says, make sure you don't let his old head go to hell without being covered in blood. And then the next sentence says, and then King David died. Why is this thing? Because um, this guy made fun of David when he got kicked out of his kingdom. And then when David came back into the kingdom, the, the guy, this, this guy feared for his life knowing that David wants retribution. And David says, you know what? Till I die, not a hair on your head's going to get hurt, man. Trust me, I don't want retribution at all. But then <laughs> David, in his, old, in his old age, remembers this thing. And then to Solomon, he says, in your wisdom, Solomon, make sure you kill the guy and take him out as your first job as a mafia hit. To me, there's this incredible tension because David is somebody who loves God. You see this thing, but he's also somebody who's broken. And this, I, I hope you can kind of like, I hope the audience can begin to feel the complexity of what it means to study literature, the beauty of it. And this is what Robert Alter is pointing at. You know, it's like, it is worth your pursuit. Just as a work of literature, read it. The stories are incredible. They've been thoughtful. And to me, that tells me Whatever this thing is called the Christian faith, the Judeo-Christian faith, it's worthy of pursuit. There's something here that's actually worth my time looking into. So that's looking at it through literature. And again, that doesn't get you all the way there. But it's like you're, you're stacking the bricks on your way to really true faith in God. I would say, like, which of these stories make the most sense? And, you know, we could all take the work of literature of the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu scriptures, right? And it's like... We can't dismiss that into nothing. We can't say, well, that's, I don't buy that. That's drunk. No, you got to take that seriously and like, you know, put that brick on there and you're building evidence for each of these great faith statements. And to me, the Christian faith like wins, wins over these other ones because it defends so strongly in almost every discipline I can look at. Okay. Let's talk about the discipline then of history. How would you defend yeah. Christianity through the lens of history? Um, let me let me jump to I think the most important part of the Christian faith I think unanimously which is we, we talked about this last time and alluded to it that all four gospels talk about the resurrection of Jesus it is the punchline and so during let me let me just talk about during that time frame I and mean, we could talk historically to in the life of David and all that stuff before which was a long time ago but long long time ago but the historicity of the resurrection is about two thousand years old and. There's a, probably one of the world's m br most brilliant theologian, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright. He, he defends this notion of the resurrection from a historical lens. He's a historian. That's his nerdiness who has studied the New Testament era, uh, the second temple era of the Temple of Herod. And he, he studied that era. And he, here's what he says. He says, listen, during that time, there are tons of messiahs. And here's what a Messiah does. You know, people have been waiting for the Messiah to come at that time. And the Messiahs, uh, anybody who claims to be a Messiah has to do three things. First, they have to make sure the relationship between the people and God is established in the temple. They got to make the temple amazing because the temple has been, you know, in ruins because of the Babylonian and the Syrian destruction. So they got to rebuild the temple and make sure people, the Israelites and the connection to their God is restored. 
Number two, they got to bring wholeness to the nation of Israel. You got to have great food. You got to have great part. What you know, shalom to live a life well. You got to have a great life. When the Messiah comes, you will have a great. You'll have peace with your neighbors. You guys will get along and have potlucks and have you know neighborhood rallies and great football games. Life is going to be awesome. And then all your enemies are going to be destroyed. That's the Trinity of a Messiah. Temple has to be built. You have to have great life on earth, and your enemies are wiped out. And King Herod at that time, if you know the story of King Herod, he built, he was trying to be Messiah. He built the temple and he made peace with the Romans, you know, but he didn't make life great for everybody. People were still oppressed and it didn't feel good, but he was like, dude, I think I'm the Messiah. So he's trying his way. Then there are a bunch of radical people on the other end and they thought, you know what, let's go backwards. Let's first clean the enemies out and then we'll figure out the temple later. So that, you know, the radical things, they're trying to fight Rome and Messiah's bride, Messiah's would be there all the time. And here's what happens to Messiah. Ready for this? Messiah would come. They'd fight the Romans. They'd lose and get killed. And then people would say, you know what? I think we picked the wrong Messiah. It's not him. It's his brother. That's the Messiah. And usually if a Messiah dies, they go to his brother because they thought it's close enough to the family. We just missed it with the wrong person. And a Messiah is supposed to do all these three things and Rome would always stop him. And what I find amazing, what N.T. Wright points out is when Jesus died and he gets crucified, people, his disciples said after his death that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, let me tell you why a couple of things. This is just absolute stupidity. Number one, he's dead. So how could he be the Messiah? Number two, he has a brother called James. They should have gone to him and said, this is the Messiah, but they didn't. They left James alone. Why wouldn't they do that when they've been doing it for everybody else? And here's the kicker. After Jesus died, none of the three things happened. The temple was still not great. There was still corruption in the temple. Rome, people were coin, carrying coins of Rome all the time. Rome was still in charge and there was no wholeness, right? The, the land wasn't restored. It was oppressed. Why would you possibly say this guy's the Messiah when he didn't do anything? It's not a random new Messiah coming in. It doesn't make any sense. And there's only one thing that makes sense. If some radical thing happened for them to actually say Jesus is the Messiah. And this is the pointing to the resurrection. If you don't have the resurrection of Jesus, this is idiocy. But man, it points to it, right? Like as a, as, an, as a logical argument to me, it's like, yeah, there, something happened for a normal Jewish person to call him Messiah. And even the word resurrection, we use it now as like a cool Easter thing, you know, uh, as like a renewing of flowers coming up and, you know, life is resurrecting for you in different ways and maybe a spiritual thing. Resurrection was a totally theological word in the Jewish people at that time. And that word never is applied to a single person. The resurrection simply was an end time thing when God comes and sets the world right. That's it. We never talk about the word in an individual person or out of space and time. It's just the last thing God does is resurrection, everybody's back again. And so for them to use the word resurrection for one person is absolute idiocy. Nobody would do that. Not a bunch of fishermen, right? Not a bunch of tax collectors. And the only reason that would even do that is something happened there. Like there's something up for them to use that word out of context. So we've talked about literature, we've talked about history. One more thing, Sadi. How would you, how would you defend Christianity through, say, philosophy? Gosh, I think philosophy is so you know that's like a, a way of thinking about theological ideas or these big ideas. One, you know, a, a philosopher that comes to mind is Charles Taylor. He's a he's a Canadian philosopher. Again, one of the greatest philosophers of our time. He's won. 
kind of every award as being a rock star. And his tome, his great work, is called A Secular Age. And Brian, he asks this really interesting question. He says, you know, if you go 200, 300 years ago, and if you, you and I are sitting around with, with our friends and, you know, having some hot dogs and talking, and one of our friends says, you know what, man, I just don't believe in God. We would all think he's nuts. 300 years ago, we think, what, what? We would kind of pull him aside and have an intervention, right? Like find out what's going on in his family. Why would you possibly think there's no God when the aroma of everything around you is pointing to it? But now, if you meet a friend and, you know, numerous of my friends, numerous of your friends, right? They're, they're atheists. They're secular humanists. Well, what has happened that all of a sudden they're starting to believe in God? I mean, believing that there is no God. Like, what has happened? And, and Taylor says, it's not the individual faith. It's actually the soil. Like, something has changed in the soil where that idea of no God couldn't take root 300 years ago. But now the idea of no God can thrive and flourish. It's an idea that makes sense. What has happened in the soil? And he talks about the notion of... Um, he talks about the notion of the Protestant Reformation. That has kind of affected things. He talks about the notion of capitalism. That's affected things. He's talked about all of these different notions. But one big idea to me that he says is it's not just science. You know, that's the big counter argument that I've heard from secular humanists is, hey, man, you know what? You guys, 200, 300 years ago, we didn't know all this stuff about science. But now we do. So you don't need God anymore. You know, you don't need God to tell me that the sun's going to rise in the east and set in the west. That's just earth spinning, brother. You know, you guys are all messed up into thinking that the earth revolved around, the sun revolved around the earth and all the Galilee. Science has cleaned it all up. In fact, if you just give me more time, science is going to explain to you how the neurons work. It's going to explain to you how evolution, it's going to explain everything. It's like that good. And to, to me, what Charles Taylor says is, yeah, that's just part of the game. Because science itself has a problem. The problem is, yeah, okay, it makes sense that these scaffoldings were needed to hold up why the world works in some sense. And as science comes, these scaffoldings are removed. But one of the arguments that happens is, you know, if you talk about Isaac Newton, if you talk about Einstein, if you talk about some of the great scientists, they were all men and women of faith. Isaac Newton, when he figured out gravity, he didn't say, oh my gosh, God's no longer needed. He goes, sweet, now I see something about how God's world works, right? So it does, it's not a counter argument against it to, to need God less. It's just a way of thinking about it that you could frame it one or the other one. So it's not a slam dunk. And Charles Stiller even points out one of the great, brilliant things that has happened in the past 200 years is those, the secular humanistic thought has now survived because they have a scaffolding. They have notions of morality that wouldn't make any sense 200 years ago, but they have scaffoldings in their own lives that says, listen, man, if we're just random particles floating in the world that just came out of nowhere and are going into the stardust as it is, why can't I just randomly start killing people? Why can't I do whatever I want to? Why do humans even matter? Why do you value life? I think Nietzsche, as, as a pure, true atheist, got it, and then he killed himself. I mean, he kind of saw unadulterated atheism and he couldn't handle it. And Robert, I mean, Charles Taylor's argument is, well, in order to kind of like live in a life that even makes any sense, rather than going insane, you got to have some scaffoldings. So listen, we're all building scaffoldings. And one of the great philosophical arguments that I think Charles Taylor makes is, Christianity is on an even playing field. It's not worse or bad. It's just everybody needs something to make sense of some of these things. And the secular humanists, they have their own 
set of rules that they need to make sense. And we have our, our own set of rules about how God works and these things we call faith that we're kind of believing in that's not proven. Secular humanists have those also in their own world. So at the end of the day then, Sadi, for you as a learned math scholar, as someone who's who's obviously read up on literature and history and philosophy, so how at the end of the day, how would you quantify or describe sort of the faith that you landed on, right? Mm. Because you landed mm. on Christianity. Explain, explain yeah. what that means to you. And, you know, it's not blind faith, obviously, after listening to you for yeah. three weeks. You know, when I'm saying we want to measure reality, and we were talking about today, Bri, when we started this this talk, we're talking about complexity, right? Like the hidden notion of complexity, how math is really measurable, but it doesn't deal with complex things. And then, you know, art and history and economics, they deal with, you know, pretty complex things compared to mathematics. There's a notion of complexity. When we talk about big questions, like you're asking, like, who are we? Is there a God that's outside of all of creation? I mean... Listen, man, if you just think about that, that's crazy talk. Like the fact that an Indian kid can begin to answer, is there somebody outside of creation? And I know that person and like it happened 2000. I mean, this is nuts. And so if you ask me, hey, what's the chance? What's the percentage as like a nerdy mathematician from your framework? Knowing you got good evidence. Listen, you got you got some literature evidence that's making some sense to me. You got some historical thing that's making some sense. You got some philosophical thing. I mean, these aren't like slam dunk arguments, right? But they're like making some sense towards it. If it's like an airplane, right, that you're going to fly into, what's the percentage that the Christian airplane is going to make it? You know, like, what's the chance it's going to take off and get where you want to go? And this includes, Bri, our friendship, you and me, right, what it means to have community. I'm, I'm including things like the importance of the body, the importance of touch. Remember, we talked about the math studio. Or like, there's so much more evidence about what the Christian faith brings into it. If I take all of it together, I'd say... 20% on a good day, right? The Christian plane is going to kind of, I mean, listen, we're talking about big questions like, who am I, right? Like it's like 20, 20% is not bad for an idiot like me to try to even get, right? 20%. And then you're, I guess you can ask the question like, why'd you pick a plane that's 20%, man? Because if you ask me what the secular humanist, humanist plane looks like, you know, the atheist plane, I think they got like 13%. They're, you know, it's good. I like a lot of their arguments. What you see is what you get is really pretty actually. You know, as a scientist, as somebody who loves clean things, and maybe issues of evolution, those things do make sense and resonate to me. So I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm giving them like 12 to 15%. Hinduism is like 10. You know, Buddhism is like eight. Mormonism is, you know, way down there. And then, then there's this American notion, right? And the American notion is, hey, why don't you build your own plane? You take the best part of the Christian faith that you like. The wings don't work out. So you add the Buddhist wings, right? Like, you know, you know how many people have flown that plane? Nobody's flown that plane. I'm not getting on that plane. At least the Christian faith, there's like a handful of people who've gone before me and like, you know, thousands, of, there's a thought behind it and they've tried it. I'm not going to get on a plane I just made up. I'm an idiot. I don't know how to make planes, right? So, and even the great philosophers, they haven't lived their life in these kind of planes. So I want to know if these planes have made it. How do you live life well? If you push your hand against the grains of the world, I want to make sure I don't get splinters, right? Like, how do I know what the grains are? What are the great truths? And so, listen, Bri, at the end of the day, we all have to get in on a plane. That's the problem. You can't not be on the ground because right now, whoever's listening, you have decided to fly your life based on some plane. You're living your life. You're making your choices. You're deciding to go to school or not. You're deciding who to, which job to get, who to marry, who not to forgive, who to love, how to treat your parents. All of those things are from some worldview, some story you think is real. 
If you think, I don't know, the story's too big, I can't handle it, that's also a story. That's a plane called I can't handle it plane. There are a bunch of people on that plane, right? I don't want to think about it. There's a plane called I don't want to think about a plane. I'd rather fly a plane that people have thought about than I don't want to think about a plane. I just want to be honest with you there. At the end of the day, I got to fly something. I'm putting my chips on the Christian plane. And the problem is when I'm getting in the plane, although I might think it's a 20% chance of success, now I'm 100% committed. So I'm all in, man. I mean, like, this is how I'm going to live my life. This is how I'm going to do things. So I'm kind of, I would say, I'm not a 20% Christian. I'm 100% Christian because I've chosen to be on this plane. If you're out there listening and you're an atheist or even just a skeptic, maybe you've never heard it explained like that before, but it really is true. Everyone has a scaffolding. You know, I like what you said, Saudi, about the the modern atheists who, it's so ironic that they're that they're fighting against their own scaffolding that's just sort of built into the way they think or the way they some of their some of their moral presuppositions and those sorts of things every single person has faith even an atheist has faith and really essentially what you're saying is it takes too much faith it takes more faith to be an atheist it takes more faith to be a secular humanist than it does to be a follower of Jesus and that's where I've landed as well to use that plain analogy not that it's landed yeah. yet but yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, to me, my perspective is exactly that. And I, you know, I would love to take somebody out for a drink and then talk about the, you know, if somebody else goes, hey, man, that's not making sense at all. To me, the secular humanist one, I'm getting like 25% on that. Well, tell me. I mean, you and I are kind of living in the same time in, in the history of the universe, right? Like we're kind of stuck in the space-time world and like, let's, let's figure it out. But I'll tell you why I'm thinking this makes the most sense. This is why we, by the way, we call our resources PursueGod.org, because it really is about a pursuit of God. Jeremiah 29, 13, it says, if G- God is speaking this to the people of Israel, but we, we believe that it's a principle that applies to all of us, really, even today, even the listeners today, that he, he says this, it's a promise that God makes. If you seek me, you'll find me if you seek me with your whole heart. And, you know, there's so much more than math or literature or history or philosophy. Really, it's a spiritual thing. We talked last week about only the spiritual people can receive this. Jesus talked about the seeds that are sown and that the soil of your heart has to be receptive to the message, to the Word of God. And and really, if you're out there listening, and maybe you've stumbled across this podcast or this series at PursueGod.org because there's a part of you that wants to investigate. I hope the conversations that Sadi and I have had over these last few weeks would have impacted you, but really at the end of the day, it's your choice. I mean, this is the crazy thing about Jesus is he invited people to come, but he didn't ever force it. Sadi, this has been a lot of fun, and I want to give you, once one more time, I want to give you the last word for today's episode. The, I just want to close with a story that I found really encouraging. There's a man named Karl Barth who um, lived years ago, one of the greatest 20th century theologians of all time. He basically has poured his life into understanding the Bible. That's all he did, right? That's his, and he is uh, a superstar of superstars. Uh, uh, this one day, a, a physicist, um, an astrophysicist came to him and he said, hey, isn't it true, uh, Dr. Barth, that all of religion uh, and theology can be summarized into a, into a phrase. And Karl Barth said, all my life's work, and that I'm just scratching the surface at this mystery, all these kind of things, not just the Christian faith, the Jewish faith, the Hindu faith, like all of theology, like everything is, dude, what is this phrase, man? I mean, how can you knock everything out of the park in one phrase? He goes, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
That was that's the phrase. Isn't that kind of the point? And Karlvar thought the, thought about this for a little bit, and then um, and then he said, "My friend, isn't it true that also all of astronomy can be reduced into a phrase?" And and this guy started laughing. He goes, "What do you mean? You, you're talking about black holes and quasars and creation of stars and you know like things we don't even understand. We don't even understand Mars or Jupiter. You're talking about every bit of this universe. And what what is this phrase?" He goes. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. And it's just that Karl Barth's kind of sense of humor, but it just goes to the fact that, you know, we could just Twitterize everything, right? We can just take an entire deep, thoughtful Jewish book and condense it and say, hey, there's a contradiction in Genesis 1 and 2, they're idiots, right? We can take these amazing uh, works of spiritual formation that other religions have thought about and say, that's what do Hindus know, man. Like I got, I got this kind of Western attitude about, I know what's good and I'm going to throw it out. And my encouragement is, you know, I've landed on the Christian faith, but my encouragement is it is worthy of your pursuit to think about and answer these big questions. You know, what is going on in this world? Who am I? Uh, what's the point of it all? And I think this, this concept that you're saying, Brian, pursue God, it is worthy of our time and it's worthy of our energy. Hey, listeners, this is Brian Dwyer reminding you to rate this show on your favorite podcast app. That really does help us when you do that. That way more people can discover this podcast and start listening. And also, don't forget to share the podcast with a friend.